Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. Chantel. Tisa. And I'm really pleased to introduce today uh, one of my supervisors, my PhD, Ben Regali, who is a professor of human geography at the University of Sussex. Hello. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about what your research is and what your interests are? Well, I've got quite diverse interests. Um, I've done research on different things over the years, but at the moment I'm finishing up um, a piece of work that I've been doing since around 2011 um, in the city of Peterborough, which kind of lies on the border between the East Midlands and East Anglia in England. What I've been doing there is a place-based study, talking to people who live there from all kinds of backgrounds, people who've lived there a brief time or all their lives, and to try to get a handle on various different themes that I'm interested in, particularly around work, migration, class and race. Can you tell us a little bit about the detail of this research, Ben? Because I know it crosses between sort of labour, migration. Yeah, well, one of the things that inspired me to do this was working with a historian called Becky Taylor. She and I did a a study in in Norwich um, where I lived for seven years and it kind of made me feel like I had a bit of grounding in East Anglia um, and that in that book we got very interested in um, if you like querying what migration means making it thinking about it differently uh, from the kind of standard way it was thought about and one of the one of the standard ways it was thought about was that people arrived into a place where other people had always been and they sort of invaded it and those people who lived there hadn't ever moved themselves so we spoke to people in an area in Norwich which was mainly white British mainly working class about those people's mobilities Um, people who had moved for example to be in the forces or people who had uh, aunts who'd married a GI after the war and moved to the States or other relatives who'd gone to Australia Um, and then you started to get stories about people who'd moved from Norwich to other parts of England or to Wales and there's a story of a particular woman who whose daughter moved to Wales and then she felt that because she was English she had to kind of live near all the other English people for safety in numbers and then the same people that we'd be speaking to some well there's a whole diverse range of views on on immigration but some of the people who had themselves been migrants were then very critical of immigration and that kind of helped us to develop a bit more of our thinking of thinking differently about migration. It was really interesting. I was talking to, um, so one of my best friends comes from Norfolk, her mum's now moved to Norwich, and I was saying like, oh yeah, well my supervisors, you know, who wrote this book about people's migration from, as they say to on Durham Road, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> my friend's mum is a nurse in Norwich, and her first um, reaction was, well, I think he'll find that no one moves about there much. And I was like, well, no, the, the point is kind of not, yeah, anyway. Yeah, but like people's uh, assumptions are so ingrained that, yeah, it can be quite difficult to shift people's ideas around, like, you know, this idea of like a static white working class, for example, yeah. in yeah. places like Norfolk. So you started the work in Peterborough in 2011. Yes. Then what, what year were you doing the work in Norwich? Okay, so um, we were working in Norwich kind of 2004, 2005, 2006, and our book came out in 2008. But what happened was that there was an advertisement, a national advertisement for a a research fellowship um, to work in Peterborough. It was a specifically Peterborough 
connected fellowship, even though it was funded by the National Research Council, the Arts and National Research Council. And so I, I sort of had my eye on it because we'd finished our research and I'd been through various things in my own life and I was looking for new things to do. And basically my mum had died and I was dealing with that and I was like, didn't know um, where I was going research-wise. And I started to travel to Peterborough from Brighton where I live. And I just started to feel that this was a place where there were movements of people who were involved in anti-racist activities, interfaith activities, um, union activities which were in opposition both to the cuts that were starting to really bite then and um, the coming of the English Defence League because they came to Peterborough in December of 2010. All this time I was writing the proposal with a team of others um, and I just kept warming to it and I also started to have these conversations with people I'd meet in Peterborough and I felt really kind of looked out for by people even at that early stage like um, a Latvian woman I met on the bus who insisted on walking me to the station because she said that's what happened to her when she first came or a, a woman who sold me a ticket to the football ground who had Italian heritage and started talking about how much she liked Brighton because of the hills here and I just felt all these connections both with the politics and with a lot of migrancy in the place um, so I decided with this team to apply and we got the fellowship and that's what started in 2011 and the day we got the news I'm straight to Peterborough and, and I'll tell you the story of the estate agent I met when I wanted to rent a room, but probably that was probably a long enough answer for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I just, because the reason why I asked you about the years is because it's really interesting that you were doing that research in Norwich, sort of 2005, 2006, mm. and then you went to Peterborough. Mm. So I'm from, if you listen to this podcast, the West Midlands, mm. um, and then I went to university um, at Luff, in Loughborough, so mm. East Midlands. So I know, even though Peterborough's on the border, people in the East Midlands do consider it as an East Midlands, mm -hmm. well, people that I mm. met and went to university mm. with, consider it as a Midland town. Um, and the time frames in which you were doing both this research, really, if you look at sort of the political moment that mm. we were in, mm. like austerity mm. was starting, actually. Mm. And it must have been really interesting for you starting that work in Peterborough in 2011 and seeing how the town... And it's one of the English towns that, that has suffered dramatically mm. through thick cuts, basically. Mm. Mm. Was that something which was which presented in your research? Mm. Or? It was just staring us in the face. It was screaming at us. Yeah. There was like, you know, we'd arrived. We had a grant. There were several other people in the team, as I mentioned. And um, everything was being closed down. And the yeah. NGOs, um, you know, voluntary organisations were just finding they didn't have any money. The council was making people redundant in very large numbers. Um, so it was a very kind of, uh, it was a clash of, um, you know, resourcing in a way. But in spite of that, people did seem to want to talk. We, 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 we used oral history as our main way of engaging with people. And people wanted to tell their story and the story of the different places they live, because we were interested in not just their relation to Peterborough, but also other places that were meaningful to them for various reasons, so that we could build up an understanding of Peterborough as made up by um, all these different connections and one of the main things that we you know we, we wanted to tell people after we'd done the main period of, of this first part of the research because there was another project later was that the biggest migration to Peterborough uh, was white British Londoners who came when Peterborough's new towns were built in the 70s and 80s and that uh, the population nearly doubled because Peterborough has a reputation which is um, you know, other sociologist Hannah Jones has written about, but also has been picked up um, by all kinds of politicians 
as being a place where lots of uh, European Union nationals went to find work in the 2000s. Um, Nigel Farage has spoken about it. Um, um, why Peterborough specifically? Why have people spoken about Peterborough? No, why did people go to Peterborough in the 2000s? Um, I think people went to Peterborough in the 2000s because there was a large and um, vibrant um, food processing industry and a growing uh, warehouse sector and there were lots of jobs available in Peterborough and there were, it was an established network of employment agencies which had, was really on the back of years of gang mastering which had happened before and I'd, I'd done earlier research on that in the countryside around Peterborough so it's another reason I wanted to go there because a lot of the people who worked on the farms through gang masters were living in Peterborough. So just... What's a gang master? Okay. Yeah, you're going to have to explain this a bit to us because okay. <laughs> like farm, farm work is not our specialism. <laughs> okay, so a gang master is a term that comes from the 19th century in England, um, but it's not um, limited to that context. It's just it's the term is. And it's, it's really when a, a person um, organises a group of people to go to work um, for another employer so it's it's like an agency except gang masters um after the second world war and leading up right through into the 70s 80s and 90s were um were bringing neighbors from their village to work in um some of these food packing places and fields gang masters were bringing miners when the mines closed uh, in the 1980s um and even when i started those interviews in the countryside around peterborough in the 90s people were being brought down in vans from um, Yorkshire uh, just for the day to work um, through gang masters who, who were local up there. So the, the nature of gang mastering changed and, and um, gang masters became much bigger and more commercial and more faceless. But there were these uh, more um, neighbourly, kind of, that, I'm not trying to make them sound, uh, you know, I'm not trying to cast judgment on mm. how they were, evaluate them, but, they, but there was much more knownness to each other. You say you're not trying to cast judgment, yeah. but the term gang master does not have good connotations. Yeah. What I'm saying is that um, there's a whole set of ideas around um, family-like employment relations, and there's a lot of problems with those kinds of quasi-family. You know, if you look at the literature of people like Bridget Anderson on um, paid domestic work, uh, where um, people are asked to do things way beyond you know what might be reasonable because oh they're part of the family kind of thing so you could these kind of intimate relations can be misused at some they can be mm. but i'm not saying they necessarily are because i've talked to people who have um a, a kind of nostalgia about those days as well mm. yeah. but I, that's what i was going to comment on like the nostalgia of those days like you yeah. know when sorry these words seem to be lost in the whole in the whole kind of I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. It's kind of like deindustrialization of Britain. Yeah. So the working classes seem to be lost, and it's the kind of the idea of wanting to be heard, yeah. and that's what I kind of get from work. Engaging in some of these these personal stories, you get those kind of narratives that come out about how they live, refusals to work, all these kind of things. It's, it's the working class struggle, yeah. but kind of played out on a smaller scale. So you're you're kind of speaking to them directly, but these voices is what's because they feel they're not being heard and the kind of the kind of lack of interest from the left. Where do working class people get to express themselves? That's why they're so willing to talk, because they want to be heard. And I think recent events in France kind of show that working class people want to be heard. And how do we do that as academics and not as some kind of 
experiment. It was, it's like a petri dish. We mm -hmm. used them as a kind of lens to focus everything else on. Mm -hmm. But in 2018, it's important for us to engage with the working classes on that kind of personal level, as what you say in, your, in one of your pieces, as people. Mm. When you say in France, you mean the gilets jaunes, those protests? Yeah, the protests now, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think it's really important what you're saying. Um, and the whole kind of oral history movement that started in England, the English bit of it, and might have started elsewhere before, but the English bit of it was all about um, recording the voice of people who weren't being listened to from the sort of late 60s onwards. And uh, there was a lot of feminist influence in that as well. Um, but I think one of the things I want to say about working class identities is that, as I know you've talked about on the podcast with others, that there is a kind of ethnicization mm. of political concern, if there is any concern or involvement. Can you just explain what you mean yes. by that ethnicization yes. of political Which concern? Which some academics are complicit in. Yes. <laughs> so by that, what I mean is um, where the working class is talked about as white working class, or when, work, when the term working class is used to mean only white working class. So Britain's multiracial working class is ignored, and um, people who have... Um, ethnic identities other than white are not considered to have a class identity in the, in the implication of that discourse. And people who come from other countries um, who work in working class occupations are also uh, not considered to be part of working class. So part of this, part of this um, research was tr trying to deliberately to, to listen to everybody um, and to listen out for where there were moments of um, seeing the same problem above if you like, for example, in the workplace conditions in the warehouses. Well, this is what I was going to say. Like, so with the kind of, with the 70s and the, and the 80s and the mm -hmm. construction of the unions, working class people lost their voices. So I read somewhere, like, I can't remember who I read it from, but he said the gains the working classes made in the 70s and 80s wasn't through politics, it was through, through the trade unions. Mm -hmm. And so hence it became imperative for Thatcher to kind of, destabilise them. So, whereas now in 2018, when people talk about unions, it seems a dirty word. No one wants to belong to a union. Everyone's very critical of the unions. Whereas, it used to be a point where class was something we spoke about. Mm. But class has been kind of removed from the mm. equation. And what's been put in its place is identity. And identity politics has been elevated to such a point where it causes difficult, it causes, it's impossible to see um, what's, what's, what we share in common. And this is what I think is one of the big problems at the moment. But to be fair, T, that's not considering how class is used in a way, as Ben just said, that is actually not thinking about working class people. It's about politically mobilising <laughs> a certain ethnicised group as being the true working class. <laughs> so I agree with you, gains were made like 70s and 80s, but that the way we talk about class is now to yeah, divide, divide basically and to, to erase the multi-ethnicity of working class people, yeah. if that makes sense. What I'm trying to say is that so class has been minimised and in such a way that it's pushed to a corner so it identifies one group but in its place identity reigns supreme. Everyone's on about who, who they're, where they're so rather than seeing what's, what we have in common, it's talking about what we have in, what we have in form, what's different from us. So in like, kind of like where I'm from, You'd be you're either Christian or a Muslim, but we've lived together for years side by side. Never, never had a problem, but all of a sudden it is a problem. And I made a comment to my friend that when I used to go out as a youngster, I used to speak to my mates, and the first question they'd ask you, "What paper do your parents read?" 
and what paper meant what, what where your party allegiances was. So if so, we went to Somerset, who's a Sun reader, they're a conservative. Mirror reader, you're a Labour, you're a Labour uh, voter. That's gone. No one speaks like that anymore. And you think, well, why is that? Well, this is making me think about talking about class and the connection with oral histories is how important um, space and place are as researchers and how we can uncover the everyday mundane experiences in life, which is what um, Les Back talks about. Now, I've been sort of focused a little bit more on this stuff because I've been talking about it in my PhD, but when I was reading some of your more recent papers on Peterborough, it did make me think about how important the everyday is and how that can unearth, as you say, sort of inequalities in the workplace or racialised treatments of migrant workers. Although I think it's important to focus on the everyday and how people live within certain spaces, I do think that um, we have to recognise how in the everyday there is a there can sometimes be a normalisation of racialization and racism and classism, for example. So in my PhD research, when people are talking to me about racist incidents that have happened to them in a in living in a predominantly white space, they sort of talk about it in a way that is in their everyday, that's normal, that isn't, this, that doesn't matter, it's not something that we should worry about, like this is just what happens. So do you know what I mean? So it's like, I feel like as researchers, when we're looking at, and in your case, oral histories or focusing on the everyday within sort of an ethnographic approach, we're sort of battling with the importance of that, but also calling out how the everyday can sometimes be quite bad for some people, even though they, they, they themselves might not realise that. Yeah, I think one of the things that you might, I feel you might, if I'm getting you right, be driving at is how um, very detailed research with individuals uh, doesn't necessarily remain um, critically aware enough about structural inequalities, um, be they class inequalities, be they gender inequalities, be they race inequalities, racisms. Although I would just say as like a side note, which I think comes across when you listen to our episode with Les, is that, like, I don't think Les Back is guilty of that at all. Of, no, like, no, no. focusing on the everyday to the extent that you lose sight of, like, bigger things that are going on. Because, like, when you read his work, for example, in, like, Migrant City, he traces back individual stories to, like, you know, global sort of financial interests that mean that people have to migrate from places because of environmental degradation due to, like, mining. Anyway, sorry, I just want to... Throw that out there to Les that I don't, yeah, I think he is very aware of that in his work. Yeah, I totally agree about that, um, uh, about Les's work. But I think the, the criticism could be applied to my work. And I think there, I, I always kind of struggle with this um, attempt to enable the individual, because uh, people's lives are all different from each other as individuals mm-hmm. and people's lives change over time. So how then to link that um, kind of biographical time of an individual life to the historical time, the different historical events that are going on, and then to the way structural inequalities are shifting over time and partly give shape. It's that, these are classic questions in social sciences. But I think one of the good things about oral history is its connection to history. And it, and it gets away from um, the presentism that some of the social sciences um, I think are sometimes guilty of so that so presentism yeah. being for me and this is like I only think I know what it means um, <laughs> it's when people write in the present tense as though it was always and forever like that so they might have done the field work five years ago submitted the article three years ago and it's published last year 
and you get that present tense without any kind of date on it and things might have changed dramatically but there's no historicizing with the focus on the everyday mm. and all histories and how we as social scientists can remove ourselves from presentism i do think there is still a tension there and i don't think that's i think that's it's okay to be sort of critical of that and i think it's useful to use anoop nayak's work um looking at the north in particular and how for example classism and racisms and how they get silenced by being part of the everyday as in it's normalised. Yeah, it's, it's normalised. I'm not saying that researchers intend to do that, mm. and he's not saying researchers intend to do that. Mm. It's just, it's, I think it's really important with looking at the complexity of everybody's lives, yes, but also recognising how structure and um, issues like racism will still affect people's lives. But it, yeah, again, it's normalised. and But normalised as mu- so much so that it's silenced, is what he talks about. I think, I think it's really important to... Um, address work when you're writing or speaking to different audiences you know to make it when you're making a political point or your work is pointing in a particular direction and actually revealing um, how structural inequalities are working um, to make it impossible for some people because of racisms to this is one of the things I've written about you know to to, say be promoted in a job yeah um, yeah that um, that you write in such a way that that does come out and mm. it's not hidden in um, minute detail but I think Anup Nayak's particularly good at this mm. um, because if you think of his article that came out last year in a, in a geography journal called Transactions of the Institute of British Geographers what he does is he um, criticises some of the um, social scientists who've written about conviviality um, by actually looking at the operation of racism in the everyday yes um, this is what so, this is what i was trying yeah. to say yeah. <laughs> yeah. so what's quite, conviviality yeah. as a concept um well conviviality um there's a lot of debate about it and there are different definitions paul gilroy's written a lot about it in after empire um i think yeah the conviviality comes in the second part of the title of that book there is a critical version of conviviality which people like les back write about um which I think I would also put myself in that school, which is really about seeing the way that people being at ease with difference exists in relation to everyday racisms mm, and structural inequalities, yeah. that it's not a kind of happy clappy thing. And Paul Gilroy sets that up by talking about the Spanish uh, conviviencia and particular um, way of looking at conviviality, which doesn't lose that critical edge. I think, yeah, sorry, it just reminds me of a conversation you had, T, with Valu when you mm. were like talking about like he was like, yeah, I grew up with neo Nazis. Yeah. So, like I said, the understanding, the everyday experience of conviviality that I had is, my friends are racist. They would say racist things, but we would still be friends. So, it's it doesn't necessarily mean that when you live side by side, everything's always happy. Mm. There's bursts of fighting, anger, mm. sometimes riots, sometimes people get hurt, but in the main, you just get on and you carry on acknowledging that these things exist but also they don't exist mm-hmm. so you i spent most of my time in white people's houses who were super racist who would watch uh death to us part death to death to us part and other old bbc shows mm-hmm. like that quite a lot and is that the one set in the east end the one with alf garnet mm-hmm. and, yeah, yeah, yeah um but um yeah and they would say look at the blackie on tv mm-hmm. but even though i'd be in the house but then quite happily come to my nan's and eat my nan's food mm-hmm. <laughs> because the, it, to them it, 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 it all made sense mm-hmm. and, and I think that's conviviality the critical version 
I've just assumed there, even in, in this podcast as a sociologist, that Peterborough is a predominantly white space. It isn't. Mm. Like, it's very close to Leicester, mm. like, for example, a place where I spent a lot of time. Mm. So, yeah, that... And that is that to do with the media? Is that to mm. do with politics? Why, why is that my assumption? Basically, anyone that I know from London, London is multicultural, the rest of the country is white. <laughs> that's how it's seen. So, so about 87% of, that's from the last, the last census, it was that 87% is outside London. Even though that's not the reality, that's how people perceive it. And that, that, that's, how, that's, how I, that's how I always see it anyway. Well, um, without going into to that and like bringing Birmingham and Manchester and Glasgow and other places <laughs> in, but um, just coming back to Peterborough, um, people uh, have framed it as a, a kind of white place, which is almost like a rural place that's been threatened by having lots of migrants, which is not used. So main, the main political parties, both Labour and Conservative, when they had migration announcements, about new restrictionist immigration policies, they went to Peterborough. One of the reasons is it's only 45 minutes from King's Cross. <laughs> they got off the train. Ah, and so then funny. the same thing happened with some of the journalists who were looking at um, the effect of Eastern European migration. And Peter was misidentified in that way because in the 50s there were thousands and thousands of Italian people who came on an intergovernmental scheme to manufacture bricks in Peterborough's famous brick fields. And then in the 60s, there were lots of people from the Caribbean and also from South Asia who came to Peterborough. Um, Peterborough um, took in, as it, as it would see it, um, uh, lots of people from uh, East Africa, um, South Asian heritage people from East Africa and also Vietnamese refugees. And it has had this continuous history. It goes back before the Second World War, lots of Irish people, lots of Belgian people. So it is completely misidentified and when uh, some of those journalists what they really meant was to go to the rural areas in Lincolnshire like Boston um, where there had been a massive change and it suddenly from very few international migrants to many but that wasn't the case in Peterborough to, to anything like that extent. And is that how peace like people who you spoke to mm. is that how they understood Peterborough themselves? Well that's a really really interesting question and the, the reason that's interesting is I mean um, my long-time research collaborator, Becky Taylor, who I mentioned before, has written on this about how the story that the academic comes up with from sifting the material that they've got, how do people who've spoken to that academic actually feel about that story? And what we did was we, um, we uh, worked with a playwright called Raminda Kaur, who's also a, a university professor at Sussex, and we also worked with um, a theatre director and filmmaker and photographer called Liz Hingley. Um, theatre director was, was Mukul Ahmed. And we um, turned these oral histories into a play, into photography exhibitions, but rather than have them in the kind of the posh venues which nobody went to, we had them in outlying areas of the city, in, in, in a mosque, in a church, in a car boot sale, in a football ground. And it was an attempt to really be where people were actually at. And people responded in the main, the people, it's self-selecting, isn't it? It's the people who come. But there was a moment where, which I've related in, in an article, um, where we felt that something hadn't gone very well. And there were a couple of people who'd been really involved in the project from Peterborough. And they said, we can do something better now. And um, one of them was, um, 
Jabeen Shafi, and one of them was the woman who wrote the book I've got in front of me, Parveen Ashraf. And um, Jabeen and I worked on a tea party. It was Jabeen's idea to have a tea party, and Parveen did the, did the very English tea, and, and she brought her catering company along, and we had people of every ethnicity, national background, and just talking about being involved in the oral histories, and people were presented with a photograph that this Hingley photographer had done with a quote from the oral history. And there was, there's a film of it, um, which was made by a young Peterborough person called Zayn Awan, and that's available online. And it did, there was a sense, and people said things like, I never realised this about my city, I never realised we had so many stories, and there was a kind of positive sense. Um, in and among um, the structural inequalities that, that we must never lose focus of. Yeah. Um, of the possibility of a city which has um, a big tradition of working class life. It's disproportionately working class city, if you look at the, the figures and um, statistics on it, um, where people were actually interested in coming together and to see themselves as of the city, which I think enables a view where you can look up at power and say, well, actually, what's happening? Who's driving austerity? Mm. Who's driving the working conditions in warehouses? Rather than being divided in the same way. That story, which is so nice, by the way, has possibly just reminded me why I maybe had the picture of Peterborough being a predominantly white space, is because a lot of the people that I went to university with who were from near Peterborough, or the surrounding towns, so Market, Harborough, Mar ha uh, Market... Market Deeping. Market Deeping, yeah, yeah. And Bourne. So a lot yeah, of them yeah. from private schools, yes. white, were very racist. And I was so... I remember being like, oh, I thought that I, I, I sort of had this assumed conviviality and just hearing the way they spoke about their area and how it had been taken over and whatever made has made me think that there was something before that was maybe predominantly white. Like, imagine if I could just show them that film that you just spoke about. Like, this is where you're from. Like, these are the people that live here. This is what's happening. So do you think through those conversations we can generate new ties that bind like new ideas of solidarity mm. for the working classes because I feel that that's the only way forward basically yeah I think there is hope in that kind of work and I think um, I mean when you say ties that bind uh, it makes me think of solidarity uh, issues and um, I had the experience of going to um, visit the tragic site of the Grenfell fire um, last June on the first anniversary of that fire and just to be allowed and even welcomed along with thousands and thousands of other people just to walk along together um, just to remember in silence and seeing the way people who were from the area embraced the firemen who were standing in a line in a uniform um, and the connection between people um, I do feel that there is some there's a terrible tragedy that's happened there and you know there's a lot that needs to be done about who caused it what caused it what systems what structures caused it but there's also something which is going on which is showing that there's a possibility that those ties can bind us together um, even if it comes from such a devastating event I tend to agree that's what I, I think that's that can happen, and I see the possibility for that. But I'm also aware of a countercurrent that runs against that, the kind of narrative that there is no solidarity there, and that people are 
in the main app when they live in cities anyway for their own self-interest just to survive and this narrative has been taken over by the right saying we need to look after our own before anyone else and this narrative is seen to kind of gain well gain currency across the world basically from new york or from america to australia i just think it's interesting that you say from the right because i've heard people from like labor and stuff say things like the only solution to exploitation is to close our borders and the only way to stop exploitation of migrant workers is to stop migrants coming here, which seems, I don't know. But yeah, that kind of, I think those kinds of like, almost like nativist strands of politics seem yeah. to be being made like common sense. Um, uh, yeah, to what extent do you think <laughs> that, um, or we can like counter that or at least try and complicate it? Well, it's hard. It does feel like we're in a situation which is um, overwhelming. I think, you know, you mentioned, Tissa, about unions in the past. I think unions are part of, uh, even now with being shrunken, but trying to find um, means of coming together, means of organising. I think organisations, collectivities are important. Um, but it, I do think that there is a, a very dangerous set of forces at play that's so I agree with you, Tisa, when you were talking about that. And I'm thinking of um, of the Pittsburgh massacre in synagogue um, recently because um, what I've read about that in the papers, um, the person who perpetrated it uh, was particularly targeting that synagogue because they were in, they were involved in welcoming refugees to um, to Pittsburgh, mm. um, and so that sort of plays into a narrative that could open up a whole new kind of um, violent anti-Semitism alongside all the existing violent racisms that are going on, including Islamophobia, which is so present in, in Britain. And just add to that yeah. violent homophobia when you think about the shootings in Orlando as well. And also thinking about Charlottesville and, um, and the, the chanting of uh, Jews shall not replace us, um, which is uh, terrifying. And in fact, some of the um, things that I've been reading on this is not something I work on as an academic, but I, I have Jewish heritage and um, I read about um, the kind of links between the anti-Semitism that has been um, re-emerging, growing much more worldwide and the Islamophobia and in, in, in this, you can see this in some of the governments that have come to power in countries, certain countries in Europe as well and I think um, that connection was evident in the way the Pittsburgh massacre was talked about um, and, and, and the, the, this dangerous narrative that um, Jewish people are opening the doors to Muslim people to um, take over you know Christian white space and that that's a, a big danger Totally, Ben. I, I completely agree. And it is terrifying. I think that adjective perfectly describes this moment that we're in. And one of the things that I would say with regards to that, that growing anti-Semitism and Islamophobia that's present across Europe is very much being sort of, it feels like in Britain, in public discourse, it's being sidelined by things like Brexit have just taken over. So it's sort of a distract, like Brexit is the, it, even from people on the left or people that claim to be progressive, like Brexit is the representation of racism. Well, hang on a minute. What's going on? What's going on across Europe? Because there are some awful things happening and 
political moments like this distract from those things that are building up and then we sort of went by the time we get to those things it's almost too late i think what's the most scary thing i've kind of found especially about the anti-semitism is the kind of disconnect from history the, the revisionism that's going on so there seems to be like i spent a lot of time on the far neo nazi website the daily stormer and so i've saw a lot of progress from how how they kind of took the idea of the Jew from Hitler and kind of put it on a cartoon. So for kids it became acceptable and they put it in anime and it became disconnected from the actual pain that's caused people. So when people see it now, there's a whole generation that are, they're so far removed from it. And so these kids just receive this way. It seems made, made, made up. So when they talk about the Holocaust, it's pointless for them. Like they quite, did you see that um, picture of the school kids in America? When they all done the Nazi salute in the in the uh, yearbook, they're only about sixteen. They go into a prom. They all did a Nazi salute. They thought it'd be funny. And this is this is the part of the kind of alt right playbook. This is part of their plan because they I think they read a lot of books about Jewish culture and how they assume Jewish culture take, took over through language. So they thought if we can change a language, we can change a culture. But this is from their playbook. Uh, um, but sorry, what what do you mean they changed the language? So. They, if the far the alt right and the far right think if you can control a language through memes and stuff like that, you can change the way people think and how they talk by shifting the Overton window in a particular direction. And I kind of guess that they got right almost, but um, the they this kind of demonization of the Jew again. It's scary to me because it's putting out tropes that from sometimes sometimes from like medieval England, from like King John kicked them out. I think mm -hmm. King England, I can't remember, but they're putting tropes from that time. Mm -hmm. And because they seem so far away, they seem harmless to people. But it's it's the worst kind of politics I've seen. Anti-Muslim racism has been present in Europe for just as long, and um, uh, or at least through the history of um, of relations between Europe and um, Arab countries. Sorry, which is to pull British, you up on a yeah, point of history. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying European to say countries were yes were Muslim countries. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I'm trying to talk about that relationship. Oh, I see, sorry. <laughs> um, the, point, the point I'm trying to make is that, um, trying to mention Dante, <laughs> having uh, Muhammad in the Inferno. Yeah. Um, so going back to Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah. I, need some, I need some cultural lessons here. Who's Dante? <laughs> What's the Inferno? <laughs> Good question. I'm way out of my um, academic area here. I'm just, just, but Dante was a, a, you know, one of the most famous Italian authors. You nodding at this? Um, 40th century. Yes, and he, um, and he had these series of writings on uh, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. Yeah, it's kind and of so, like. Yeah one of the things that shapes the kind of European imagination of like what hell is. Yeah. Whoa. Eight levels of hell, I think it is. Eight? Circles? Eight circles, yeah. Eight seven circles. Isn't it seven circles? Isn't it always seven? I have no idea. I haven't read it. Okay. Carry on. <laughs> coming, back, coming back to Saskia's point about um, Islam being part of Europe, I think that's really important. And the, but it relates to the same thing that I'm trying to say, is that, you know, the, the um, expulsion of Muslim people from the Iberian Peninsula you know, has a, a kind of resonance with the expulsion of uh, Jewish people from England. But I think the key thing is... Well, also, anti-Semitism was a big part of those, the same people who expelled 
Muslims yes. from the Iberian Peninsula yes. were also incredibly anti-Semitic yeah. and like the Spanish Inquisition and yeah. their yeah. kind of anti-Moorish politics yeah. and stuff. Yeah, Thank sorry. You. <laughs> I was Which is also really it. important. <laughs> and what I wanted to say was all of the work on anti-racism needs to be a lot of political education, a lot of standing together and a lot of solidarity. It comes back to your point about solidarity. Um, this is where things have got split and it's very, very um, gut-wrenching that the, um, the summer of 2018 was spent with a lot of misinformation about anti-Semitism uh, and the way that anti-Semitism was spoken about actually weakened the main forces of anti-racism, which fighting anti-Semitism should be part of. Sorry, what are you talking about specifically at Pittsburgh? No, I'm talking, because Pittsburgh happened more recently. Okay. I'm talking about the summer when there were these relentless attacks on um, the leader of the Labour Party and how that um, was, uh, you know, attacking the party which is at the forefront of um, organised mass-scale anti-racism, even though it's got anti-Semitism within it, that has to be um, got rid of. It's got racism within it of other kinds that has to be got rid of. It's got everything within it that other large organisations do, 500,000 members. But it is, as a body, it's wanting to do that. And I think it's important not to weaken that is at this time when you've got the far right about to launch a new march mm. to claim Brexit as a betrayal and that as their issue. The far right that until recently were focusing only on Islamophobia and being anti-Muslim this is really ramping up the danger level and this is what we you know we need to be working out strategies to to oppose following on from this awful political mm. conjuncture mm. that we're in so this week something really awful made the news and there was videos shared on social media of a young syrian refugee being attacked um by some kids at school and um me and Tisa were talking about this earlier this week, like how awful it was and, and whatever and how it was good to see people saying we don't we don't stand for this stuff and whatever. But something that I find really troubling about us talking about how mobilising the far right are at the moment, but also erasing at, at the same time how we can sometimes be um, complicit in erasing how race, people have experienced racism since before this moment so that boy being attacked that's that that's something that has happened a lot in in schools it, like I, I can recall my own experiences of that sort of thing at school so do you know do, do you know what I mean so how do we talk about how serious this moment is which it is I, I think it'd be really difficult difficult to argue against that but also recognizing that there have been things like this that have happened have not stopped happening basically so part of our political education is knowing our history. Yeah. And by that, I mean our history as a whole globe and also our history in these islands. And that's a plural us. One of the problems is the whole battle over who us is, mm. um, which, which we could discuss. But exactly that, I think, when some people um, started to talk about the rise in racism at the time of the referendum, they did totally ignore the fact yeah. that it was going on all the time and you know there, it's th this is really important and it does um airbrush away the structural racism of the society yeah um just going back to what you were saying about debate if you can call it that over um anti-semitism in the labor party 
<laughs> you look pained. <laughs> it is a painful debate. <laughs> um, I know you're a bit reluctant to talk about this, but um, this is something we talk about between ourselves a lot. I don't think we've ever attempted to talk about it on the podcast because we feel so woefully misinformed. But if you feel able to, what is what are your thoughts on the way that debate has been played out in public? Or how can we, or, or rather, how can we make sense of the debate? Like, what would be a way to... Um, understand it more because I, I, I always I'm always asking Sasha and Tiso but what does this mean but why are they having a go at him about this or like why I didn't think that person was racist like what what, do you, what does that mean Did, that, I mean like... Tiso like we have no idea <laughs> <laughs> well I'll tell you a little story I've just joined a Yiddish choir <laughs> and, um, what and, does that involve just uh, singing in Yiddish and uh, one of my favourite songs in the choir um, is from the Jewish socialist movement of the 1930s called the Bundists. And it's a story... Can you sing it for us? I'm not going to sing it on the podcast. Oh. Um, and um, it's so powerfully about this tradition of standing in solidarity, um, all, all oppressed people, all people who are experiencing racism, standing in solidarity. That's why at this moment in Palestine, it's important to um, stand alongside the Palestinians in their struggle against oppression by the state of Israel in um, in the West Bank, in Gaza and inside um, the the boundaries of, of Israel. And that's uh, and one of the reasons I'm hesitant to talk about it is because the debates so fraught around even what you call those different areas. Um, but um, there have been laws recently passed in Israel which have put into law second-class status for Palestinians who live within the borders of um, what was Israel before it um, annexed and occupied certain other areas. Um, so I think that that Jewish tradition, that Bundist tradition, that socialist Jewish tradition, which is there are, uh, not to lead, but to be part of, alongside with others, standing up against oppression and calling it out, that for me is very um, uh, much something that I can relate to. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to sing some of these songs. Not that the choir itself is political or not that it only has those Bundes songs, but I was very pleased Everything's to find that. political. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and also I think it needs to be um, absolutely possible to be um, Jewish without feeling that one has to always back up what Israel as a state is doing. So this is one of the big upsetting things about the debate because when Jeremy Corbyn went to have um, his uh, Passover meal uh, with the Jewish organization called Judas um, he was among Jews and he was uh, very at home and he was welcomed um, but he was condemned for doing that because what it, it was seen as disrespect to the, the um, what what is seen as by some as the main Jewish organizations and they are important organizations in terms of numbers but there's also others like the um, uh, some of the um, Hasidic Jews who number, you know, well, I don't know the numbers, but more than 10,000 and a large proportion um, who are virulently anti-Zionist and who uh, recently um, threatened to boycott a dinner that Sadiq Khan was going to because it was being hosted by one of the more Zionist groups. One of the reasons, another reason why this is a difficult topic is because there's a people get into a binary about, about Zionism. 
and, and uh, Zionism is bad, um, anti-Zionism is good on, on, on the left. And there's a, there's a problem there because Zionism is a whole set of complicated things. There are many different kinds of Zionism. I'm really sorry, yeah. but for some of our listeners, because yeah. I only learned recently what it yeah. is, can you explain Zionism? Well, as I say, I come to this as a lay person, not as a academic expert, but I understand um, Zionism to mean the belief uh, in, in, in a homeland for Jewish people. That can be meaning the state of Israel is the home for Jewish people, and it, but it can mean a lot of other things as well. It can mean other things, and some um, sort of Jewish people who want to um, be in solidarity with Palestinians in their current situation would talk about non-Zionism rather than anti-Zionism. And Judith Butler has written quite a lot about different kinds of Zionism, and I, I really don't know enough about it. Interesting is to mm. see how Zionism has been taken up by far right. So they say, like, if Jews have a state, mm -hmm. why can't white people have a state? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the arguments that they use to kind of put for this all-white ethno state that Richard Spencer spoke about. If Jews have Israel, white people should have a space for them. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't know how that would work, but this is... There's so many things caught up in that, because the... Um, the word Zionist becomes identified with the Netanyahu regime currently in Israel, but there's lots and lots of Zionists who hate that regime. Um, now that regime has, you know, been in touch with Orban. I think Netanyahu's visited yeah. there, and there's been a lot of favour. Who's Orban? Uh, Orban being the head of state of Hungary, um, but also, you know, Netanyahu has been um, close to the Trump regime and the whole moving of the U.S. embassy. Um, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, so there, but that shouldn't mean that the left treats Zionism as just a bad word in itself. I think that what I would do in this situation is to ask Palestinian organisations about Zionism and ask um, Jewish organisations that are wanting to stand up against all oppressions and all racisms about to explain a different kinds of Zionism. I think one of the problems that, that, that this um, debate has exposed um, is that on the left, tropes of anti-Semitism, tropes that meaning signs of which related to past um, stereotypes about Jews that led to uh, mass hatred and eventually ex you know, making extinct of millions of Jews. Um, those are being used by some people um, in some cases unknowingly, mm. but even then, uh, whether knowingly or unknowingly, political education was needed and still is, so that the left avoids those kinds of tropes. And sometimes, and this came out in the sort of more recent discussions between the, those Jewish organisations that see themselves as representing the community and, uh, and the Labour Party, sometimes Zionism itself um, is used in an anti-Semitic way. But that's not to say that to criticise the actions of the State of Israel is anti-Semitic. That is a big problem. That discourse is a big problem because that actually, I believe, can turn people into anti-Semitism if they think that um, the Israeli state can do what it's like without any kind of comeback because it's a Jewish state as anti-racists. Um, we have to we have to fight against, and that's why organisations like uh, Jewish Voice for Peace in the United States uh, are so important, and um, 
uh, Jewish Voice for Labour in, in, in the Labour Party, but also others like Jews for Justice for Palestinians, a number of Jewish organisations which are um, coming from the more of a Bundist perspective, like I was saying, from that um, earlier period of uh, Jewish um, solidarity with um, international anti-racist organisations and campaigns. In this moment where it feels like more than the conjuncture, where it feels like racism, the mainstream nature of it, and how um, the establishment appears to be collaborating with the far right, or has done for a while, and now they're being exposed, like whether that be, I mean, we're not going to go into too much detail, but for people like Aaron Banks, like all these people, what source of hope do we have in this moment? What, what can we look to? What should we be doing? Well, this is where um, the Silent March, which we were talking about yeah. briefly before, um, and as I say, it's it's a, it's a you know a bizarre juxtaposition because that happens because there was such a, a terrible uh, event, um, but there are other kinds of um, organisations that are working across countries that are trying to link struggles um, against. Um, the use of fossil fuels against racisms. I'm thinking of um, somebody I'm very closely related to who's involved in this. Um, <laughs> and who may have just written an article in The Guardian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that's my son, by the way. Um, I think that there's a, a need for both younger people to really be energised by this, but also older people to bring experience, to rethink, to learn from each other and from younger people and to act and to allow people to take the lead who experience oppression. I think that's one of the things in, yeah, in terms of this political yeah, education. There's, there's work that's being done on this uh, in labour, but it, it hasn't gone nearly far enough. And I think that's where, that's where we need to go. But we, we have to um, survive. In order to survive, we have to find our common humanity without losing our critical acumen. I like how you use the title of the podcast in your answer because we're surviving society like right now. Just about. <laughs> You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantelle, Saskia and Tiso with Professor Ben Regaley in Brighton. This is our last episode of 2018, <laughs> but we will be back in 2019 with some more great guests and ranting. <laughs>